Hello, and you're very welcome to the second of our Your Politics special podcast to mark the anniversary, the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement in April. Now, our first podcast on the women who helped bring about the peace is already available online. And today, I'm joined by four people who played a role in reporting on and three of you in being part of the story. Stephen Grimison, former BBC Northern Ireland political editor, the man who broke the detail of the Good Friday Agreement on that Easter in 1998, and who then went on to serve as Director of Communications for the Powering Sharing Executive. Stephen joins us from Belfast, as does the MLA and former Ulster Unionist Party leader, who before that was a UTV presenter, Mike Nesbitt. And with me in studio, former Republican activist, editor of Unfublacht, MLA and now writer, Danny Morrison, as well as the Irish Times columnist, Justine McCarthy. And during the 90s, Justine was features writer for The Independent and this was one of the big stories that she was covering at the time. So you really are all very welcome here in Dublin and remotely. And maybe Stephen Grimison, let's start with you and that Good Friday in 1998 and seeing that document from, for the very first time. What kind of pinch me moment was it? Was it something you had expected? Was it something that surprised you? Well, it was, it was I was everyone, like, like everyone else, I was hoping to get the document uh, first. But I suppose that when you actually have it and you're actually holding it in your hand and you you are not just holding a piece of paper in your hand, you I had that sense that I actually might be holding the future of this place in, in my hand in a way. Um, and it certainly was definitely a major a pinch me moment, probably the greatest pinch me moment I've ever had. Yes, it certainly was. And it came Danny Morrison after a very long, cold night. What I remember, and the journalists piled into the car park outside Castle Buildings, the, the coffee ran out, the food ran out, the toilets were overflowing, there was no loo paper. At one stage during the night, and I didn't know you at the time, you were kind enough to share a bar of chocolate with me because there literally was nothing, nothing to eat. So, so I mean, what are your memories of that night and that day? Well, I was a bit of a poacher turned gamekeeper. I actually was reporting for The Guardian and the Irish Examiner so I was with the journalist that was interested in yeah. being in that camp and seeing the reaction. It was great crack. I mean, uh, I remember uh, Peter Taylor, uh, uh the Breden, and uh, we were just, we were getting called out for press conferences. Yeah. We were told at one stage that it was over, it wasn't happening. And then I think about three or four o'clock in the morning, Mitchell McLaughlin came out and his body language was that it was on. Yeah. But it was, it was hard to read because also I ended up at my first DUP press conference when I accidentally was in the tent with loyalists screaming abuse at Ian Paisley for uh, refusing to negotiate. So it was really, really a remarkable time. And of course, it was a remarkable document and a remarkable compromise on all sides. And Mike Ness, but you know, we look back and, you know, we had Van Morrison and days like this. We had, you know, David Trimble and John Hume sharing a stage at big rock festivals and getting the Nobel Prize. So that, that sense of euphoria, that sense of relief, that sense of hope and optimism. Your thoughts on all of that then and now? Well, at, at the time, I had two sons who were aged three years and three months uh, and eight months. And I remember at around 4 or 5 a.m. on that Good Friday morning, uh, going home, I didn't live very far from Stormont, uh, to get a shower and a change of clothing. And the two young boys were 
and lying in bed with their mother uh, and just looking at them sleeping peacefully and thinking, you are going to grow up in such a better environment than, than I grew up in because I, I was born just in time to live through what we so euphemistically call uh, our troubles. So there was a great sense of, of hope and it was basically founded in the fact that um, for the first time since partition, uh, every group, every community in Northern Ireland could have a sense of purchase and agency uh, in the future of the country, which had never happened before. And, and that, I think, was the genius uh, mm -hmm. of that particular document and that agreement. And it's very hard to convey, isn't it, Justine, to, to people who didn't live through that then? You know, what we're commemorating here, we're remembering 25 years on. Uh, it, it's, it's not just a piece of history. It's also the sense of relief that, you know, all those years of waking up every day, you know, and it could be a Warrington or it, 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 whatever it was, every single day, just the sense of living through that and the relief that people could imagine this was now over. Absolutely. Um, that was a time when you were afraid when you woke up in the morning to turn on the radio because you were going to hear about some other um, person or people who have been uh, killed in the Troubles. And it seemed so intractable. It seemed that it was just going to go on and on and it was going to seep into the future generations as well because the, the bitterness and the division was so deep. And I think now that we're looking back at over the 25 years, uh, people talk about the momentousness of Good Friday itself and that weekend. And uh, I think for me, the, the image that sums up the emotion of it when everybody knew that this is something really, really big. Um, and this is something that affects all of us. Mm -hmm. It's not just uh, people in six counties north of the border was when Bertie Ahern came back after his mother's funeral. He had come to Dublin, gone to his mother's funeral and gone straight back up to um, Stormont. And when he arrived, all the uh, camera operators and photographers put down their equipment and there was silence as he walked towards the door. And then uh, one journalist, Eamon Malley, uh, just spoke on behalf of all the journalists present and said, you know, paid uh, everybody's condolences. Yeah. And it was a very moving moment because you realised the risks and the extent that uh, people were going to to try and secure yeah. that really, you know, what seemed like a very um, sort of fantasy yeah. that we could have peace at last. And there's an awful lot of people who contributed to all of that. And I want to talk now a little bit about who you each give credit to. And Annie Morrison, I, I wanted to ask you this, that whatever your political differences with, with unionism and whatever you might think of David Trimble, do you give him credit for the fact that he led the Ulster Unionists into power sharing with Sinn Féin, as they, many people in that party saw it as, you know, an accommodation with terrorism they never wanted to make in their lifetime. So do you credit him with political courage? Well, I credit all of the leaders at that time. It was difficult for everyone. I mean, it was extremely difficult for the Republican movement and for the Sinn Féin leadership as well, and for what the compromises that were required. So I think everyone deserves uh, credit. I think there were mistakes subsequently made. I think it was a mistake by David Trimble that after Seamus Malin, he were elected first and deputy first minister to then suspend 
the other nominations. That created great internal problems in the Republican movement because there was a very small number of people who were, sell, who were saying, this is, you, you've had your, your, your face has been wiped here, this is a sellout here, they're taking you for a ride. And of course, that small number of people uh, were responsible for the Yuma bombing uh, in August, two or three months after the Good Friday Agreement. So everybody took risks. But I mean, I think that it was the right thing to do. I think that we could have done with a Good Friday Agreement on Good Friday 1969, and then no one would have lost their lives in the conflict. So it took, it took all sides yeah. a long, long journey to come to that point of compromise. And there was many difficulties, and the biggest regret, of course, is that there was a conflict at all, and that three and a half thousand people lost their lives. And Mike Nesbitt, again, whatever you know, difficulties you as a unionist would have had with Gerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, and, you know, what happened and decommissioning and everything, all of that. But do you give them credit for delivering, delivering the IRA largely intact on ceasefire, not once but twice? Well, I, I know the, the, the emphasis and the effort that people like Jerry Adams and, and Martin McGuinness put into trying to keep uh, the Republican movement together. But if you would forgive me if I say the people I think about uh, most when I look back 25 years are David Trimble, and John Hume. And, you know, we in the Ulster Unionist Party have a credo, which is country first, party second, individual third. I think if you substitute people for, for, for a country, then you sum up John Hume's attitude. It was the people first and the party second. And, and they both had deputies uh, who were warning them that if you go down this path and accept this agreement, you will do huge damage uh, to your party. John Taylor uh, famously, of course, looked at a draft of the agreement and said he wouldn't touch it with a 40-foot barge pole. And we know Seamus Mallon, the deputy leader of the SCLP, uh, was very concerned and, and really quite upset uh, about John Hume engaging with Gerry Adams. Uh, and one seminal moment, I think, of, of the whole process was the 1st of February 1994, where Gerry Adams made his uh, debut on American soil at the Committee uh, of American Foreign Policy in the uh, that hotbed of socialism, the Waldorf Astoria uh, Hotel, uh, where he got that 48-hour uh, visa from President Blink Bill Clinton. And that that brought the Republican movement into the political tent, and that was so important. Yeah. And actually, we'll be talking to Trina Vargo about that in the third of our, our podcast discussions on this. But Stephen Grimson, that point Mike Nesbitt's making there about the SDLP and the Ulster Unionists, but they were the two parties that didn't get rewarded politically for the fruits of the Good Friday Agreement by the voters. No, they weren't. I mean, they were effectively both parties were broken on, on the wheel uh, of the peace process. I suspect that John Hume realized that that was going to happen. And remember, I think people talk about architects of, of the peace process. I think there was really only one architect, which was John Hume, but there were a number of contractors who came in on foot of that. And for unionists who, who complained at the time uh, that John uh, started uh, talking to Jerry Adams, John had said to me at the time, you know, I've tried for 25 years to get a deal with unionists and they, and they simply aren't interested. So now I'm going to try something else. And he was incredibly brave. So it, it, I think that everybody um, was operating at the pretty much at the edge of their abilities. And it took that to deliver this. And it didn't deliver everything. And it's, a, it's been an imperfect piece, as most people would agree. But, you know, those basic relationships, the three strands 
that Hume brought in, you know, into the, the conversation. He did it first in terms of the internal relationship, the north-south relationship, and the east-west mm -hmm. relationship. Whatever we do next, those three relationships will those three relationships will still be at the centre of this. And that point Stephen Grimmison is making about an imperfect peace, uh, Justine McCarthy. Um, were there flaws on the Good Friday Agreement from the beginning and, you know, in terms of the decommissioning issue being unresolved? There have been questions about the legacy issues that didn't get unresolved. Uh, took an awful long time to resolve police. So, so what, what took away from the momentum and stopped it fulfilling, you know, the hope of those days like this that we saw 25 yeah. years it ago? It was a flawed agreement, um, but it had to be. Uh, it was the only way that it could be agreed. Um, if it was perfect, it would never have got the uh, consent from all four sides in the, in the negotiations. Um, but it is always open to being made better because there is that clause in it that allows for review and there's only been one review so far. Um, and there's a lot of talk now again about the necessity for another review. And just looking back to the whole sequence of events in the negotiations, um, decommissioning was nearly, um, was a point where the whole thing nearly collapsed at one stage when John de Chastling came back um, after meeting the IRA mm -hmm. and said, look, they, they have commissioned some but very few arms. And David Trimble was in a very awkward position at that stage. Um, I th David Trimble was not a, a leader who was liked uh, in, in the Republic, certainly, and amongst uh, nationalists in the North, but he certainly came good. And I think he personally, um, his political career suffered as a result of the, the brave stance that he took. Um, his party, um, the SDLP did. Um, and I think that is going to change again in the future. You know, this is an evolving process still. And if we still need a Good Friday Agreement in another 25 years time, mm -hmm. I think that might be a sign of it yeah. having failed in 25 years time. And of course, Mike Nesbitt, uh, there was the moment on the morning of Good Friday, uh, the belief was a deal had been done, but then there was problems for David Trimble when he went back to his party's delegation. And then we had the sight of Jeffrey Donaldson walking out, walking away from David Trimble, walking away from the Good Friday Agreement. And now, of course, he leads the DUP and the DUP has to decide whether to make power sharing, the power sharing delivered by Good Friday, whether to make it work. Your thoughts on that? Well, my, my, my thoughts on making power sharing work is that there is no alternative. There is no majority in Northern Ireland anymore. Uh, we're all minorities. We're all entitled to be there. Nobody's going away. Uh, so we need to find a way to muddle along together. And the framework of the agreement, I think, is the only show in time. And indeed, the history of unionism rejecting, walking away or collapsing, going back all the way to 1985 and the Anglo-Irish Agreement, is that we ultimately end up walking back into the room to discover there's less there on the table for us than when we walked out. So I'm entirely against uh, this flawed strategy of collapsing Stormont. We need it back up and running mm -hmm. uh, and we need to create friends and have more engagement, not less.
And when unionists do walk back into the room, Danny Morrison, there are many people who are saying maybe, maybe now that Sinn Féin isn't actually that interested in making Stormont work, that they're more interested in having a unity poll and pushing towards a united Ireland. What's your take on that well, debate? I think that's a, a, a total misinterpretation. I mean, if you look at what Sinn Féin has invested in the peace process and in supporting the amendments of Articles 2 and 3 in order to make things easier for the unionists, recognising the PSNI, the judiciary, going into Stormont, which symbolically represented our second-class citizenship, and been willing to work with the unionists. I mean, the, the, the amount of times that Michelle O'Neill's put out statements appealing to the DUP to come back, are, you know, too numerous to mention. But what I would caution against is, and it's understandable from the Alliance's point of view, they feel pretty frustrated uh, at this walkout, and they think that the structure should be changed. And I would be concerned that if it was changed, that you could have a situation where a much larger number of unionist supporters the, around the DUP would feel alienated. So I don't think we should uh, touch that, the whole framework, the, the power sharing agreement, the whole way the haunt works. Start, once should, you start pulling uh, one thread, uh, the whole thing can unforeseen unravel. consequences yeah. and you don't know where it would land us. There's one other question when we look back over the 25 years, and maybe Stephen Grimison, uh, you'd start with your thoughts on this. And again, I'm very conscious of it. You'd be conscious of it, Justine, as a reporter. You, you know, trying during the Troubles to report... We had Section 31. You know, the barriers to being able to find out the truth and tell the truth. And, of course, we've learned an awful lot since, you know, through interviews and reporting and books and so on. So that, that challenge of working out then and now what the truth actually was, Stephen Grimison. That, that's a big issue. And, and uh, But I think that... Um, I, I, I don't have any sense that anybody on any side uh, or any part of the community here really believes that everybody's going to, you know, people are going to join hands, sing Kumbaya and tell all the stories from the peace process. There are too many um, actors with too much invested in terms of how they want themselves regarded and seen uh, for that ever to happen. Um, and I think possibly if you look at all the difficulties we're facing. I mean, we haven't even yet been able to agree to agree what a victim is. Um, and those people have perhaps been the most let down by all of this. Uh, and I would also say that 25 years ago, everybody was just very, very absolutely obsessed with drawing a line under the violence as much as possible and just getting something going. I think 25 years on, people have come to expect a bit more than that. They would like to have their politicians seriously deal with the health service, with education, with all those sorts of things, so that their children who can have a stake in the future of this place actually have a real stake in terms of being able to, to grow and thrive. But that brings us back to the trauma and the divisions, you know, that, that still persist in Northern Ireland. And we spoke about it in the previous podcast, the very high suicide rates since, particularly amongst, you know, the post-Troubles generation who, who are the worst affected by this. We still have the peace walls. We have the bonfires. They're higher and, you know, burn brighter than... So, so there are still all of these problems. And where are we at then, 25 years on? Are we celebrating something, you know, that was good back then, it's not that great now and nobody really knows where it's going? Or, or, or is it something that's healthy and thriving? Your take, Danny Morrison. Well, I think legacy 
has proven to be an insuperable problem. I don't think, I mean, for example, even if you look at the Bloody Sunday families, vast majority of the families accepted the apology from the British Prime Minister at the time. A number of them say, no, we want the soldiers named, we want them in dock. Even if they're only going to serve two years under the Good Friday Agreement, we want them to serve that time. And that is, is uh, replicated throughout yeah. all sections of the community. So there's some people who can forgive, nobody's going to forget, uh, and there's others who say, no, I want that person named, I want them identified, and I want them to serve a prison term. Mm -hmm. And I, it's, in a way, it's bedeviling the peace process at, at, at the moment because there's, we can't get the truth out of the British government, They've, they're changing the laws, they've actually broken and departed from the Good Friday Agreement in terms of, of what they would, yeah. in terms of, of legacy and the truth and the past. So it is insuperable and I do not have the answer and I don't think there is an yeah. answer. But you say you can't get the truth from the British government, but I remember Eamon Malley, of course, who was, along with Charlie Bird, one of the first to get the statement about the IRA ceasefire. I remember him saying he was giving a talk at one stage in the years since to, it, it was a Republican gathering. Um, it might even have been failure, I don't know, but he's mainly Republicans in the room anyway. And he was talking about his memories of, you know, the ceasefire and all of that. And he said, I'm looking around the room and he said, there's all these people in the audience who know lots more about all of this than I do, but they're never going to tell their story. And after the Boston College debacle, I yeah. suppose, how much of the story, for instance, the full Republican story, are we going to hear? Not all of it. And I don't think we will ever get all of the truth. And if there is a, a sort of iconic image for me um, of that aspect of the problem, it is the face of Geraldine Finucane. That woman has spent so long trying to get to the truth, trying to get the, what most people know is the truth out in public about why her husband died. There are too many secrets. Um, and I don't see that the um, safeguarding of those secrets is going to end any time um, because they're in the establishments and establishments hold on to their secrets for a very, very long time. I mean, even in the 1930s, uh, before Fianna Foyle took part in 1832-33, Cumann and Gale destroyed all of the records of the Civil War. So you have people protecting themselves, and I think that applies to everyone. I don't know of any conflict in the world where uh, the victims got justice in the end. Anywhere in the world. No, but did South Africa do that healing process, that truth process better? Well, I watched the South African better? Truth Commission and two elderly people whose daughter was killed along with three other civilians in the ANC car bomb explosion. The, the ANC volunteer got up and he explained that he carried it out and he apologised. And when the couple came out of court, they were saying, well, is that, are you happy now? And he says, no, we're not happy. It still, it still didn't bring their daughter back. And I don't know, that's the problem with yeah. conflict and war and suffering. It's, it's, it's ingrained, it's deep. Uh, all sides believe that they were the ones who suffered the most or that they had justice on their side. It's the same for the unionists. They believe that they were the victims. From my point of view, the conflict arose as a result of an explosion of 50 years of second-class citizenship. And that's, and that's the way I view things. Mm -hmm. And nobody's going to change my mind because that's how I experienced it. And that brings me, um, we've lost Mike Nesbitt, but I'm going to go around e each of you now on this, this point finally. And in all the report, first of all, I have to say before we go, I, I think the very best book on the Troubles, the whole thing, is Lost Lives.
because it tells the story of each and every one of the victims. And I think it's out of print at the moment, Reed Rogers said, but I do think anyone who's interested in this anniversary, it is, if you can get your hand on it, one that's worth watching. But there was also a moment, and this was in the uh, BBC Spotlight series of programmes on the trouble. Troubles, and it is uh, Stephen Grimison. I don't know if you remember this, but it's the IRA's Tommy Gorman, the IRA veteran uh, Tommy Gorman, who was asked. Um, he was asked at the end of the day, "What was it all about?" And he breaks down weeping, and it, it's a phrase that really resonates. He says, "It was a waste of time. It was a waste of life." Did well, there's, that there's strike no... you, Stephen Grimison? Look, there is this, uh, and I speak as the, the son of, a, of, a, of an RUC officer, um, that it was just a horrific, horrendous time uh, for all and sundry. Um, and I, I suppose I, I feel fortunate in the sense that coming from what would have been uh, the union community, I got to meet and know and understand and spend long, long periods of time with people like Danny Morrison. To understand just what the con what is always missing when in a lot of the discussions that go on is the context. That's a brilliant piece of context from him, and it's personalising it. But the, the, this the whole. I, I think that no matter what we do, there are going to be people who are going to carry these scars to their graves, and there's no way I don't think of, of stopping that. But what I would say is that because of the efforts of everyone, um, uh, including all the politicians who were involved and the people we haven't mentioned today, the, the loyalists who put the DUP to flight the night before, as Danny said, the night before yeah. uh, the, the deal was signed, all of those people made their contribution. And in the end, there are probably maybe 2,500 people walking around in Northern Ireland today and maybe another ten or 15,000 walking around today, today who are alive, who wouldn't have been or who would have been seriously injured. And I think, you know, oh, was it all worth it? What did we, you know, in terms of the, the, the peace process? Yes, it absolutely was. Danny Morrison. Well, I mean, Tommy's speaking there from a very personal point of view, and I understand he was disillusioned with the outcome of the conflict. But the way I look at it is the Good Friday Agreement is a work in progress. Uh, it was a compromise, and ultimately I think that out of it will, come, will come, become permanent peace and permanent justice. Because from my point of view, it's the British government's interference in our affairs that caused the conflict. And until that ends, and they still claim sovereignty over the north, until that ends, we're always going to live in an imperfect situation. So last word to you, Justine, after everything we've heard and thought about and after 25 years, the waste, the prospects, the hope? You think about all the funerals um, uh, on both sides, in both communities. You think about... Uh, the psychological stress that all the time that I covered the, um, the troubles, I would come back home to the safety of Dublin and think, how do they live there? It's easy enough to go up and work as a journalist, but to live there every day with that tension. I mean, to me, everybody was a victim in Northern Ireland at that time. 
I do think it's kind of a little bit past to say it shouldn't have happened. The situation was there was an unjust administration and there was an unjust society there and that was untenable. Um, and again, I say it made it all the more unbelievable that some sort of a peace agreement could be made. My fear for the future is that that old guard that negotiated the peace agreement is passing on. There's a new generation who really do not have that gut understanding of what they have been saved from and therefore may be less likely to protect what was hard fought for. I hope they will do that. Well, let's hope hope and history go on rhyming to some extent for another 25 years and beyond. I've really enjoyed our discussion today. Thank you so much Thank for you. joining us. Thank you also to Mike Ness, but sorry for the intermittent connection there, and to Stephen Grimison. Uh, and these podcasts, they're available online wherever you get your podcast. So thank you for watching. Like and subscribe as you will. One more to come and that's going to be with uh, two of the key diplomats involved in all of this, David Donoghue and Trina Vargo. But from all of us, for now, goodbye. <laughs>